that's the story of my life. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's always good to be with God's people, isn't it? And to come and take the name of Jesus in love and awe, not in anger. Turn on telly, you hear it in anger. Walk down the street, you hear it in anger. You come to God's people and his name is spoken with awe, love and great affection. Thank you for the opportunity of being with you this morning. I always appreciate the invitation to be with you. And it's great to be with you again. It's Anzac Day today. And of course, we're reminded of the sacrifice that many have made in defending the liberties that we have in, our, in other countries. My own uncle, he died in the First World War. I never knew him. He lived and died long before I was born, believe it or not, you know. And his bones are somewhere in Belgium. Never recovered, 21 years of age. Went from a farm, Tuna, Australia, or should I say Taranaki. And uh, on the great adventure of going to war, and suddenly he dies at Passchendaele, along with thousands of others from New Zealand. And so we do honour the name, we honour the memory of these people who as they say, paid the great sacrifice. And this morning we're going to continue in a war zone as we turn to 2 Samuel. I've been asked to mention something that's, I think, pretty important, and that is late learning. And there are a number of you here, and you are younger, and you want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. I know you do. And I want to talk about, just for about a minute, an exceptional opportunity at the beginning of January every year near Lake, Lake Taupo, we'll say, there's a camp and it runs for a week. And during that week, there are about 30 different lectures. This year, 57 students, most of them young, not all of them, most of them. And the teaching is given in blocks of one hour lectures. And if you want to grow rapidly, and if you want to hear a teaching from people who won't lead you down the garden path, then we invite you to think about coming. And if you want more information, talk to your own Andrew Linton. He's an expert in the subject. So, Andrew, you can expect a barrage of inquiries now. Would you turn, ladies and gentlemen, to 1 Samuel chapter 5? And we'll read. I'm working this morning from the New Living Translation, and we'll read from verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David, Hebron, and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel, and the Lord told you, You will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites 
taunted David, saying, You'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. For the Jebusites thought they were safe. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. On the day of the attack, David said to the troops, I hate those so-called lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. That is the origin, origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. So David made the fortress his home and he called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Then King Hiram of Tyre sent messengers to David, along with cedar timber and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. These are the names of David's sons who were born in Jerusalem. Well, you can read them yourself. There are 11 of them. Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. But David was told that they were coming, so he went into the stronghold. The Philistines arrived and spread out across the valley of Rephraim. So David asked the Lord, Should I go and fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, Yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. So David went to Balaam Paraim and defeated the Philistines there. The Lord did it, David exclaimed. He burst through my enemies like a raging flood. So he named that place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord who burst through. The Philistines had abandoned their idols there, so David and his men confiscated them. But after a while, the Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Rephraim. And again, David asked the Lord what to do. Do not attack them straight on, the Lord replied. Indeed, circle around behind and attack them near the poplar trees. When you hear a sound like the marching feet in the tops of the poplar trees, be on the alert. That will be the signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did what the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way to Gibeon, to Giza. We are living in a time when a lot of people are very confused and very worried. Isn't that true? Almost every time you turn on the television, they're worried about climate change. And if they're not worried about climate change, they're worried about COVID-19. And with reason, I mean, this virus is devastating our world. And people are worried about their jobs. And they're worried about their businesses. They're worried about their health. And there's a lot of panic. And so we're living in a time, like most times, I guess, in one way or another, when we find that it's very hard to be confident about anything. I mean, 
What guarantee do we have of the future? How can we be men and women of confidence? That's the subject that I want to take this morning, which I've called the key to confidence. The main character in the chapter, and I'm sure as you've gone through the series, you already know this, the main character is the one who is called called King David. I mean, there are millions of people around the world who are named after him, directly or indirectly. Very, very famous. We heard from one of his psalms this morning, and we love his psalms. And we love quite a lot about David, and I'll expand on that probably a little bit later. For a long time, people doubted, and by that I mean archaeologists, not believers, but archaeologists doubted that David ever lived. There was no mention of David elsewhere. And, of course, as many archaeologists are concerned, absence of evidence is evidence of absence. So what they say is, if we can't find anything about these people, when it showed that they didn't exist. And then in 19... 93. In northern Israel, they found what is called the Tel Dan Stella. That's a hunk of rock, or hunk, uh, it's a tablet. And very clearly written in it, I couldn't read it, but experts can read it. It has reference to the house of David. So archaeologically, they began to realize there really was a David and is confirmed by archaeology. Now, that's dated to the 9th century BC. David lived around about 1,000 BC. That is 3,000 years ago. In Christianity Today, that's a Christian magazine, last year they gave the 10 greatest archaeological discoveries of that year, and one of them had reference to the father of the wife or a wife of David. Again, archaeological proof that what the Bible says is true. But ladies and gentlemen, when we take the Bible, we're not so concerned about whether the Bible is true or not. We take that as granted as read. The big question is how relevant is it to us living in the 21st century? We live in a digital age. We live in an age of GPS. We live in an age of all kinds of electronic and other miracles, so-called. How does the Bible relate to the world in which we live? Some time ago I read a book by, I read books sometimes, by John Stott, and he talks about an occasion when he's invited by a Christian couple to go and speak to their sons. They doubted the truth of Scripture. And as Stott was beginning to talk to them and talked about the fact that, yes, you can trust the Bible, it's reliable, they said, really, that's not of interest to us. We don't have any problem with that. Our problem is this. How is the Bible relevant to us? Because it was written over to, oh, about 2,000 and odd years ago. How is it relevant to us who live in this day and this age? And so I think that as Bible readers... What we need to do is when we read something, a bit of history as we're reading this morning, we have to ask ourselves, how does that relate to how I live in Hamilton on Anzac Day? What's the relevance? Otherwise, ladies and gentlemen, it can be just a matter of satisfying curiosity. Much of God's revelation actually is in history, in the form of history. First 17 books of the Old Testament, 
get the history there, all the rest supplements the history. Go to the four Gospels, history. Go to Acts, history. And much of God, the revelation of God, is actually found in history. So when we come to a portion like this, we don't need to ask, is it true or not? But we do need to ask, how does it relate to me and mine and us today? In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, known to the world as St. Paul, he's talking to his young protege, Timothy, and he talks about Scripture. And he says this, and this again is the New Living Translation, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses us to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. In other words, Paul is saying when you take Scripture in hand, what you ask is, how does this train me to be a Christian? How does this train me to live a right life? And to do that, it teaches me. And to do that, it rebukes me. And to do that, it corrects me and it trains me in righteousness. So when we come to a portion of history, as we're looking at this morning, we ask, what do we learn from David's exploits here that can help me live in Hamilton, or in my case, Cambridge, or wherever we are today? I want to make two points from this chapter. In other words, we're going to find out how, what can God tell us. Now, I have to say this, the whole of Scripture is inspired. But my use of it is not inspired. I'm fallible. So you might look at this and you find other lessons. We're not talking about inspiration here. We're talking about the application of Scripture. How does this apply? And there are two things I want to take from it for this morning. And the first is this. Don't be self-confident. The second is, be God-confident. Now, this actually, I mean, we can skip over and say, oh, another chapter in 2 Samuel. It actually is pivotal. Joshua, if, you, if you're a Bible reader, you know that Joshua led the invasion of Canaan to take it for the name of the Lord. And we can get the idea that it happened in one generation, but it actually took about 400 years. It began with Joshua, as we find. And then for 400 years, that's what, 12, 13 generations, they were trying to take complete control of the city of Jerusalem. And this is the taking of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you're interested, in Joshua 18:28. It says that the land, that portion of Israel was allotted to Benjamin. And then when you come to Judges 1.21, it says they allowed the Jebusites to live there. So you've got the situation, they're invading Canaan and it's taking a period of time. Benjamin is given that area which we call Jerusalem, but they allowed the Jebusites to live there. Over a period of time, the Jebusites began to dominate. So by the time of David, this area that was given to Benjamin was actually in the hands of the Jebusites. It was the city of the Jebusites. And in this chapter, 
David takes it, fully bringing the finale of the taking of Canaan. Notice it's called Jeru-Salem. Some of you know, you've heard of a man called Melchizedek. Unusual story, comes from nowhere, goes nowhere as far as we know. And he was the king of Salem. It became known as Jeru-Salem. So in this chapter, you actually find that David and his men are overtaking the city, and this is the finale of the conquest of Canaan. So it is actually very important. Now, the inhabitants of the city thought it was impregnable. You could never take Jerusalem. And in Lamentations chapter 4, we have the kind of thinking that was relevant or prevalent, I should say, in those days, and they said, not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would have believed that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem. And so you find that the people who live in Jerusalem, those people who hadn't been fully conquered until the time of David, they are very, very self-confident and very despising of David and everyone else. And in verse 6, it says, David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. So you have the picture of the Jebusites, and they're so full, so overwhelmed with their own importance and safety. You could never do anything against us because we're so proud and we're so impregnable. Try, if you will, but you will never get in here. And that is an example, ladies and gentlemen, of overweening self-confidence. And if our confidence is placed in ourselves and what we have, and who we are, then it is poorly placed and poorly based. The definition of confidence that I came across as I was researching for the message of this morning was, confidence is the feeling or belief that one can have faith or rely on someone or something, but you know that. And synonyms, here are a few synonyms. Sureness, poise, assurance. Certainty. But you find that as far as the Jebusites concerned, who were so proud of their strength, so proud of their city, had such a noble history, you'll find that it leads to defeat. And so as we read this and we think about it and we say, how does this train me in righteous living? We say, I learn not to be self-confident. And so you find that this complacency and there's arrogance. And you know the verse in the Bible in Proverbs 16 that says, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. And that's true of Christians as well. Ladies and gentlemen, if we're proud of our doctrines and we're proud of who we are and we're proud of our history, we're setting ourselves up for a fall, because as the Bible says, pride goes before destruction, and that's one thing that we find here. Now, 
So the first of the points that I want to make is don't be self-confident. And that's the kind of thing that James fleshes out when he says, and I notice it's not on the monitor, so I'll turn around. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there for a year, we will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. And so the fine New Testament confirmation of what I'm trying to apply from chapter 5. The second point is this. Be God-confidence. Self-confidence says, yes, we can. God-confidence says, yes, God can. And if one thing should distinguish us from those who don't know the Lord, don't have that privilege yet, is this, that our confidence is not in ourselves, in our own wisdom, in our own ability, in our own gifting, but rather in the fact that we serve the God who is adequate for every situation. It's always hard sometimes when you're speaking to know how honest you should be, and I just want to say something that I'm not proud of it. It's just how I am. For a long time, I struggled to like David. Like the Psalms, like the story of David and Goliath, but he was so brutal. I mean, he's described in Scripture as a man. He's like a she-bear robbed, uh, robbed of its cubs. He was brutal. He was ruthless. Even in chapter 4, you will find that with just a snap of his fingers, he destroys two people. And you go through the history and you find that literally tens of thousands of people are killed by this man. Now, God doesn't approve of everything that David does. So when he wants to build the temple, God won't let him because he said, you're a man of blood. You know, so I just found it difficult. And then I read in my daily, in my devotional reading in Acts 13 several years ago, and this is what it says. Paul is preaching, and that's St. Paul, of course as he's known to the world. And in it, it says, and I can actually find it, I hear this. Paul says, quoting 1 Samuel 13, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And I used to wonder, how could David be a man after God's own heart? And then he says, he will do everything I want him to do. And ladies and gentlemen, if we do what the Lord wants us to do, we are people after God's own heart. And you come to the end of this chapter, and you actually find the very last verse. So David did what the Lord commanded. And that's why he was a man after God's own heart. Not because he was brutal. Not because he was vicious. Not because sometimes he was vindictive. But because he was a man who did all that the Lord wanted him to do. Right. I've got a few points here, and I just want to go through it fairly quickly. We can be God-confident because of various reasons, and the first is this, God is always with us. And it says here in verse 10, David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Do you believe God is with you, or is it just a fancy theory? 
I mean, if you go to Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Acts Romans chapter eight, and there you'll find um, Paul talking about all kinds of problems that assailed him and others. And he says, "If God be for us, who can be against us?" The expected answer is no one. Now, it doesn't mean to say that people won't try, but it will mean they won't be successful when they attack our spiritual basis. Because, you see, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if anyone in this world should have confidence to face the future, it's the believer. Because, you see, the Lord is with us. You may know the name Henry Ward Beecher wrote a number of classic books. And he learned a lesson when he was a boy. He was at school. The teacher asked him to do a recitation, and so he got out and he started to recite something. And the teacher said, stop. He was taken back a little bit, continued to teach, said, stop. And so he sat down. Someone else got up, another boy got up, and he began to recite, and the teacher said, no. But he kept going, and the teacher said, no. But he kept going until he finished. And the teacher said, that was good. And Beecher thought, how come? He went to see the teacher and said, how come that you said it was good when he did his recitation, but you said no to me? And the teacher said, well, he just kept going. Even when things seemed bad, he just kept going. And Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher said, I learned what it means to be confident, and that is you keep going even when it's tough. Because you see, God is with us. Now, if God is with us, I mean, and I'll come to the matter of how do we make doctrine and how do we make theology relevant and real in our lives and not just a good idea, pretty idea. And we ask the question is, if God is for us, why do we shy away sometimes when we face a challenge? There's something which is more difficult and so we don't do it. We say, oh, we come here and we sing and we say, God is for us and we can triumph in God and we go out there and face some little problem and we just wither away. Why? Is God with us? Do we really mean that? You know, I could expand on this, but I would say there are a number of things that will make us quail when we face an opposition and face some kind of challenge and we lose our confidence even in God. Why? And one is the fear of failure. We don't want to fail. If you never try it, you'll never fail. It was E. Stanley Jones, the great evangelist, who used to say that fear is the sand in the machinery of life. Fear will stop us functioning as God wants us to function. We're frightened of trying to preach, and we're frightened of trying to witness, and we're frightened to try to speak to our friends about the Lord, and, we're, and we don't do it. And we don't become the women and the men that God wants us to be. And we don't do exploits. And we don't face challenges. And we don't do these things because of the fear of failure. We can learn from failure, but that's not my subject. Sometimes mind limitation. We tell ourselves, oh, we can't do that. I'm, who am I? And quite often as you go through the Bible, you find great heroes of the faith as they became. And our introduction to them is, who am I? And sometimes it holds back, and sometimes it's feelings of inadequacy. I mean, the Lord is with us, but we do feel inadequate. Do you remember when the Lord came to John and said to John, baptize me? 
And John said, who am I that I shall baptize you? You shall baptize me. John the Baptist, among the greatest of women, born people born of women, that was John, and yet he felt inadequate in the task that he was given to do. And we can feel inadequate, but ladies and gentlemen, if God is with us, can't we face things that are fear-inducing? I was interested some time ago reading through a book, and I read the statement by Billy Graham, and I've got it here. With the kind of publicity and media exposure that he has, people have a tendency to feel that you, in his case, him, he is larger than life. Many people put me on a pedestal where I do not belong. I share with Wesley the constant feeling of my own inadequacy and sinfulness. I'm often amazed that God can use me at all. God can use you, but you have to do something. You have to trust and you have to do things that make you quail. Otherwise, you'll never grow. You'll never find out how God can use you and the potential that you have. A hero of mine is a Jesuit priest, and his name is Greg Boyle. Greg works among the gangs of southern Los Angeles. He, in the last book that I read, a book given to me by my daughter for Christmas, um, he had actually officiated at the funerals of 220 people who had shot, been shot dead on the streets of Los Angeles, people he worked with, people he loved. And what he's done is he's established a number of businesses, and the slogan is, jobs, not jails. He's very well known in Los Angeles. He tells a story about a young man, well, he was at one stage, a young man, Carlos. Carlos was two years of age when he was actually taken from uh, um, he was taken from his home in El Salvador, taken to America, and he lived there until he was 25, and then he was deported. He was being brought back to America, and he was going through Mexico, and he found that he was robbed, and they literally stole all his clothes, and he was left literally naked. But he said people were so kind to him, and they gave him clothes, and even though he had tattoos all over his body, they weren't frightened by him, and he was overwhelmed by their kindness. And he made the resolve. He said, from this moment on, I'm going to be kind to people, like people were kind to me. And he was riding on the top of the train as he's making his way back to the United States, and he went through a little village. And in the village, it had an evangelical church, and it had a placard out the front. And the placard had, remark, remember, his name was Carlos. The placard had, Carlos, I am with you. It dissolved him in tears. And he said, God is with me, and it changed his life. And ladies and gentlemen, if we really believe that, that God is with us, why do we live pathetic, miserable little lives? We can be God-confident, too, because God is always speaking. And you'll find here in this chapter that David prays a couple of times and he asks the Lord for direction and God gives a yes answer in verse 19. So David asked the Lord, should I go and fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, yes, go ahead, I will certainly hand them over to you. And then in verse 23, he gives a yes but answer. Again, David asked the Lord what to do. Do not attack them straight on, the Lord replied. Instead, circle around behind and attack them 
attack them near the poplar trees. You know, sometimes I think people in the Old Testament had it pretty easy to find out what God wanted them to do. I mean, when they're in the desert, nighttime there's fire and in the daytime there's a cloud and if it moves, they move and it was pretty easy, it was pretty obvious. Or if they weren't sure, they'd go and see a priest and he'd have on these breastplates, Amum and Kum, Amum Thum. And they would ask, and somehow in ways that no one knows how it worked, they would get an answer from the Lord. So in the Old Testament, it was pretty easy. Today, it seems much more difficult. And how does God speak today? That's the question that I have and want to answer very briefly. And the first is this, through Scripture. You see, what we're looking at today is not just history. It is history, but it's more than history. It's God shouting at us. It's God's preaching to us. J.I. Packer recently deceased, spent much of his life studying inspiration of Scripture, and he said, after 20 years of study, I come to this conclusion that inspiration is God preaching to us. And so in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, God is preaching to us, and he speaks through his word. And, well, I've got the notes here. I know I try to minimize the number of PowerPoint slides. But you find, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, We never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is, and this word continues to work in you who believe. Read your Bible, get to know it, live according to it, saturate yourself in it, believe it. He speaks through godly advice, and it says in Proverbs 15 and 22, plans go wrong through lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. It's quite interesting as you go through the beginning of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, and there Moses is, I mean, the word Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, deuteros, second, nomos, law. So he's going a second time through the law. That's why we have the word Deuteronomy, you know. So he's reminding the people, his people, of what has happened. And he reminds them of the time when they sent spies out to look at the land of Canaan before they actually went into it. And there Moses says, people came to me and they said, why don't we send some spies out into the land and see what's going on? And Moses, I thought it was good. That was good advice, so I sent out 12 spies. Now he did it, he says, because he got good advice. And if you're wanting to move in a direction that maybe scares you, ask for godly advice. Another way is through conscience. Remember an incident in the time, the life of Elijah, and he's very worried, and I'm worrying now about the time. He's very worried about what he's facing. And it says, 1 Kings 19, 12, after the earthquake there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after fire there was a sound of a gentle whisper. And God speaks through focusing on Christ's example and teaching. Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. You see, we come together as God's people and we love the word of God and we believe it. 
And I guess everybody in this room, you would believe that God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, invisible, loving, all those things. You believe the theology. The question is, how do I actually live it? How do I make it so that theology is more than just theology, but rather a reality, life-changing, life-shaping in my existence? And here are some things that I have to treat very, very quickly. Draw strength from what you believe. Hold on to the belief that God wants what is best for you. Be willing to wait God's timing. David wasn't always a soldier. He was a shepherd for a long time. Looked after sheep. And waiting time is not wasted time. And as he was looking after the sheep, he got out a sling and he got stones and he slung those stones against trees. He became a marksman and he had lots of time and he composed songs and became the sweet psalmist of Israel. Waiting time is not wasted time. And call out to God who knows and hears. I don't want to be just a theologian. I want to be a practitioner. I don't want to be a person who just believes certain things, but it has no effect on how we live, how I live. Let's pray to the Lord, shall we? Let's, let's express to the Lord how we feel. And there's a prayer that's coming up. And it may help you to express in words what the Spirit has said to you this morning as he shouted at you or whispered to you. And you say, I need to respond to the word of God now because if I leave it to lunchtime, the force of the Spirit may not be as strong. I mean, our Lord said that Satan is like a bird of the air and he sees the seed. And as soon as the seed is sown, he comes and he snatches it away in case it takes root. And that's why we need to act. And let's respond now to the word of God. It is the word of God. Use your own words, but these words may help someone. Something like this, Lord, I thank you that you are the loving and unchanging one, but sometimes I feel overcome with fear, which makes me too timid to trust you. I do believe you know about me and can strengthen me for every difficulty. You can help me to accept challenges in Christ's name. Please strengthen my trust and my resolve. Let's all pray for 17 seconds privately, individually, expressing to God our response to the word of God this morning so that we are no longer self. We're confident, but not self-confident, but rather God-confident. Let's pray. 17, let's just pray for 20 seconds. Lord, you've heard every prayer and they're offered in the name of your Son. Amen.